And we're going to be continuing today in our series, Women in the Story of Scripture. My apologies for how bad that slide is. Someday I will fix it. Blade. Someday. <laughs> no, just throwing it out there. So as Pastor Jake talked about last week, we were working through some of the uh, considerations for how City Church uh, listens to scripture and how it speaks about women. And Pastor Jake walked through some of the more uh, difficult verses in the New Testament and how we can uh, understand them to be properly interpreted, interpreted in their context. And today we're going to walk through a different story, one that is one that we're probably all familiar with, one that we probably all know pretty well, and it is one that has also been used quite a bit to, honestly, approve the domination of women, both in the church and in the world at large at times. Uh, so, so let's go with me in this. You've probably heard this part of the Bible before. Uh, it's the book of Genesis, chapters 1, 2, and 3. And we're going to pull a couple of scriptures out of them real quick. They're just walking through the creation of humankind and the creation of womankind and then some of the results of the fall. Okay? So let's start here. In 126, God has created everything up until this point. He has created uh, the sun, the moon, the earth, the sky. He has created the world. He has created every animal and plant you can imagine. He has created every uh, fish of the sea, bird of the air. I almost got those backwards. Uh, tuna as well, so I guess also the birds of the sea. Is that what they're called? Chicken of the sea. Thank you. Forgive me. For that, I feel I must repent. All right. And then God said this, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move on the ground. So God creates everything, and then he begins to create this pinnacle of creation that is uh, good and will uh, rule or care over all of the rest, right? And it says, And so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So when we first hear about the creation of man, this is very apparent that God is creating mankind as a whole. And that mankind as a whole will be over the entire world by his decree. And that mankind demonstrates the image of God holy. And that male and female both carry this image of God in them. They both demonstrate God and who he is, right? Then we're going to skip forward a little bit. In Genesis 2, we actually hear the second account of how male and female were created, of how mankind was created. Uh, If you didn't realize this, there are two distinct times whenever we hear about mankind being created in the book of Genesis. A couple more, actually, throughout the end of it. Can someone make sure that gets where it's supposed to go? I'm sort of just throwing it around. Sorry. All right. Male and female, we see he created them in Genesis 1. And then in Genesis 2, we see this. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. So we see God creating man himself. We see a little bit more in depth how he created mankind, right? Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden, put him to work it and to take care of it. He said, God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Skipping forward a little bit. 
the Lord said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. All right? So first off, I want to point this out because it's always worth remembering. God created and it was good, right? He created the world and it was good. He, cre- he created all of the animals and plants and it was good. He created uh, the s- literally everything. I've forgotten where I'm at in creation order. He created everything and it was good. He creates man alone. And what does he say? It is not good. So first of all, just to throw it out here, humankind is completely incomplete without women. It is not good for man to be alone. Oh, it'll be coming. Don't worry. There's even more coming, right? To consider the first time God looked at the world and said it is not good, it is because, women, you were not present. It's pretty good whenever you show up, right? And so then it says this, I will make a helper suitable for him. And I want to point one thing out as well. Just that phrase there, I will make a helper. At times, whenever we read that, we think of it and think of it in the terms of uh, authority, right? Oh, if she's his helper, that means he must be in charge of her, right? Fun story. Do you know who else is called a helper of mankind in Scripture? God himself. So do you think helper denotes authority in any way, shape, or form? No. Huh? It's really hard to drop. It's attached to my ear right now. It just doesn't drop, right? So helper does not denote authority, right? It can denote role or function at times uh, in the way in which uh, people are created. But I want you to point this out as well, guys. Uh, Everybody. It was not good because man needed help. He was inadequate on his own, right? Now, this actually makes sense with what we know of Scripture currently, because with what we know of God currently, because God eternally lives as one God who is three distinct persons. This is the mystery of the Trinity that I cannot begin to even pour out to you. Fun story, Ken and Becca, in a little bit, we'll be discussing two separate heresies that deal with the Trinity, because following this women in Scripture, guys, we're going to go into a super fun sermon series on heresy. That's right, we're teaching heresy at City Church, but in a good way. All right? It's going to be fun. Hey, guys, come out to my church. We're teaching heresy this week. You're welcome. Thank you. Yeah. All right? God is eternally in community with himself. It is not good for mankind, that which is created in his image, to not have community. And so it is not good for there to be one. The closest we can get to demonstrating the community that exists within the Godhead as humans is in the relationship between man and woman. It was not good because man could not fully glorify God without partners in life. Make sense? Skipping on even more. I think. I pressed my change. All right, so, didn't I just read this part? No. Now, the Lord God had formed out of the ground all of the wild animals, all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. Whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So, who was it that was talking about this and was making fun of the fact that by the time uh, they got down to the insects, man was super bored at that point? What's that one? B, 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 B. Fine, you're a B. 
What's that? That one flies. All right, you're a fly. Fine, whatever. All right? God had created everything in front of the man for man to name and for man to recognize uh, who they were and what they were. And to show honestly, consider this. If you consider what God was doing here, I want you to just think about how much he is building up to the reveal of Adam of what uh, his partner in life will be. Because God literally took every kind of creature in the world and paraded them in front of Adam so that Adam would see all of their uh, iniquity, all of their inability to be a partner for him, a helper for him, to see just how much everything is not good enough yet, right? This entire train runs through of all the animals that have ever existed. And Adam's like, bee, nope, fly, nope, cow, nope, horse, nope, dog, close, no. Because dogs are super cool. Please note that was not me comparing women to dogs. My goodness. I'm tired. <laughs> I'm not speaking well. But I truly enjoy my dogs. Right? I am not a good speaker this morning. I am very sorry and very tired. There's a lot on my plate, and I removed the sermon I was going to preach this week, largely because I didn't want to waste it, because it's going to be super good, guys. This is a new one. My apologies. All right? So God, the man gave names to all the livestock and birds of the sky and the field, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Everything else prayed before him was inadequate. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh, Random fun story, just going to toss us out, very euphemistically because of all the kids in the room. Fun story, rib was often a euphemism for something in Hebrew. Just kicking that out there. Sorry, enjoy. I know, your faces, but go ahead and do me a favor and check and see what type of bone many mammals have, male mammals have, that for some reason humans do not have. Interesting concept. Leave it there. This is just a fun piece of trivia. Nothing? No? No? Everyone's like, oh my goodness, and freaking out. Enjoy your ancient Hebrew euphemisms. <laughs> then the Lord made woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. He brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she is taken out of man. Fun story, that word woman and man in Hebrew is ish and isha. Ish is man, isha is, is woman. And they bear a, a connotation of a kind, right? Man and woman are of the same kind. This is not the same thing that happened whenever Adam saw a cow and said, all right, you're a cow, whatever. You notice it doesn't say Adam was like, you are a boy cow and you are a girl cow. He was denoting kinds of creatures, right? He knows that she is of a kind with him. She is different than all the other creation that has come before. And she is good. She is good. Then the fall happens. And so man and woman are living in harmony with God, gloriously, perfectly, without sin, nothing wrong. And then the serpent comes and deceives and as we talk about times, offers this choice between the greatest good, which is God himself, and a lesser good, knowledge, right? Uh, and lesser good, guys, is bad. It's evil. That's the definition. That's something that is lesser than God. And even Adam chose to partake of this lesser good. And fun story, they 
eat of this fruit, which they should not be eating of. They recognize their nakedness and their shame, God in his presence, and hide. Both of them. And God comes and says, Adam, where are you? Obviously, by the way, God completely knows everything. He knew right where Adam was. Wasn't really a question. Adam's like, I'm over here, I'm hiding. Why are you hiding? Because I'm naked. Who told you you're naked? Where did you learn this? Did you eat from that tree you're not supposed to eat of? Yeah. Then Adam tries to blame it on his wife, but fun story Eve wasn't around whenever God gave the commandment never to eat from the tree. She wasn't even created yet. So Adam is being trying to blame his wife for something that was fully within his control. And also, he was trying to pass on to his wife blame because he didn't have to eat it. He still chose to. Right? Fun story, guys. Whenever you are involved in some form of sin or another, even if someone else was the general instigator, yeah, you can't just blame them doesn't work out. Scripture proves that. It checks out. Trust me. And the fall happens. Because of man's sin, the world is not what it was supposed to be. The way in which we relate to nature, the way in which we relate to each other, the way in which we relate to God is changed completely. Our relationship with him is broken. Sin and death enter the world. And the world is now in the state it's in because of this. Right? And we can see some of this because God actually proclaims a couple of curses over the land. And these curses are things that are the direct result of mankind's sin. And honestly, the serpent's sin too. It starts out with, God said this to the serpent, because you are done this, done this cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals, you will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Fun story. This section here is called the proto-gospel. Because right at the beginning of creation, right after the fall of man, we see the first glimpses of what God is going to do in the gospel, of what Christ is going to do. Because the enmity has come between the serpent and the woman and her offspring, but one specific one of her offspring will completely destroy the serpent. He'll be struck, but he will strike the serpent. And then, to the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And then to the man, he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree of which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. Two things with this that I want to point out very closely. One, Did you all catch the part where it says your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you is a direct result of the fall of the world and the sin that entered the world? Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Fault of the broken state of this world. And also this. Following the fall, 
Adam gives his wife a name, Eve. Now, who here knows anything about the specificity of naming things in Hebrew culture or even ancient Near Eastern cultures in general, right? This concept that if you are able to name someone, you do have some authority over them. As a matter of fact, one of the things that were done in mystery religions or Canaanite religions at the time was to learn and understand the names of certain gods that you could call out on these gods' names because if you can name them properly and understand who is causing what issue you're having, if you name them, you have authority over them. They have to do what you say. They got to. Fun story. Moses sees this burning bush and this God speaks out to him from him and calls out to him and says, Moses, And Moses is like, what? There's a bush talking to me. What's happening here? And then he realizes there's something super weird about this. And then all of a sudden, this God starts speaking to him from this bush. And he takes off his sandals because he recognizes holy ground. And God begins to explain to Moses exactly what he would have to do for him. The ways in which Moses, honestly, would suffer for his namesake. Not a piece written in scripture, but also super true. Moses did a bunch of suffering for God's namesake. And Moses hears this and says, the people of Israel are going to ask me who you are. What name should I give them for you? And God says, doesn't matter. I am. Tell them that I am has called you. (laughs) See, God doesn't reveal his name, not because it would give power to Moses, but he didn't want Moses to think he had power over him. In other sections of scripture, we see God, whenever he takes part of someone's life, whenever he grabs them and pulls into them, God often renames them, right? And so Abram, he renames Abraham. Paul is renamed from Saul. Uh, Jacob becomes Israel. We also see at times different kings, both good and evil, bringing people into themselves and changing their subjects' names whenever they take authority over them. Uh, We see this in the book of Daniel, especially. Uh, Daniel is given a separate name for the king that's over him. You see, naming in this context denotes the taking on of authority. If you have the authority to name someone or to change their name, you have authority over them. Adam named his wife. He took authority over her after the fall, but not before. That authority that he took is a result of the fall of the world. Good news, real good news, is this. Not just this particular effect of the fall that we're discussing, but every effect of the fall that we have read about, all of the curse that occurs, all of the evil and horribleness that happens in this world, every day, that brokenness that exists, the suffering we have to put up with, the death we have to put up with, the evil we have to put up with, all of those things have been defeated by who? Give me a Sunday school answer. Yell it out. Thank you. They have been defeated by Jesus. See, in his life and in his death and in his resurrection, Jesus defeated all of the rulers of the world and principalities. Those are the sons of the serpent that were being discussed. He defeated death for all time. He defeated sin for all time. In his life, we have life and we have defeated death through him. Will we taste death? Yes. Will we taste it eternally? No. As he has life, we will have life. You see, Jesus, in what he was doing, in his victory on the cross and in his victory in the resurrection, Jesus overcame the effects of the fallen world. And fun story, he's overcoming this one too. 
This is why Paul can say, in Christ there is neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor fee, free. In Christ all are one. We're all under him. Now, fun story. What does this mean for us today? Well, good news, first of all. Uh, that same defeat over sin, death, and brokenness that overcomes this, it also overcomes any effects of the sin of this fallen world in your life. Guys, if there's anyone here who is struggling uh, with the concept of your own forgiveness or the concept of your own mortality, please note the answer to both of those questions is Jesus. He overcomes your guilt, he overcomes your brokenness, and he overcomes your death. Look at him. Two, just as we as humans are called to strive against the brokenness of this world, yes, it is toiling for us to regain our food still, but we are called as people to innovate and try and find ways to overcome the results of that fallenness, right? We don't still just sit out in a field and deal with thorns and thistles all day. We, in our growth and in our development, have begun to overcome some of these effects of the fallen world, while at times exacerbating others. But we're still fighting against it, right? And the church is called to be at the forefront of struggling against the effects of the fallen world. And one of the effects of the fallen world we should be struggling against is the domination of men over women. Guys, the Me Too movement and stuff that we're reading about now, uh, stuff that is scary sometimes to people who are in power, the church is supposed to be supportive of things like this. We should not be taking part in the same way in which the world does, in which mankind dominates over those who they feel are underneath them or which those in authority dominate those who are not in authority. Instead, we as the church should be lifting up those who are at the lowest points of their lives, those who are what the world would consider weak or in need or broken, that's who we're supposed to be supporting. Please note, if you've been reading anything on CNN or whatnot about the way that churches sometimes deal with this, if we as a church ever have to have one of our leaders step down because of something like this, please don't give them a standing applause. All right? You're all going, hmm, go ahead and read CNN real quick, just a little bit, all right? Uh, on the same note, do I believe that that gentleman, uh, wrong word, that person who uh, had relations with one of his youth group kids whenever he was a youth pastor is completely a part or against forgiveness that God could ever forgive him? By no means. If God can't forgive him, then I'm saying God can't forgive any one of us, right? Can he be forgiven? Certainly. Do we applaud someone's honesty when they proclaim something like this from the pulpit? No. You see, you can forgive while still recognizing that the things that people have done have removed them from the right to hold authoritative positions in the future, right? That's perfectly fine. Uh, one of my old youth pastors actually used to talk about it this way. If you are standing on one side of a door and someone's on the other side and they knock and say, hey, open the door, and you open it and they punch you in the face and you close the door again real quick, and you say, ow, oh, that hurt, and they're like, oh, I'm so sorry. I should never have opened that door. I should never have, I should never have hit you. I, I, I'm so sorry. 
you can forgive that person without opening the door the next time they knock. Right? You can forgive without blanket accepting them. They can still deal with results from their fallen nature. Theoretically, one of the people in this room could murder someone else, and God can forgive you, certainly. Does that mean that you should not have to face any repercussions for murdering someone? No, you'll still face some repercussions. Hopefully. Honestly. The church should not be defending institutions of power that hurt or harm. The church should instead be defending those who need defense. That's why Christ so often called out for supporting the widow, the orphan, the motherless, those who are poor, uh, those who are under oppression, the slaves. If you don't know this, whenever the church first started and the church was first running, the people who were most supportive of the church were women and slaves. Free men who owned property, for some reason, weren't super big on the church that was proclaiming freedom for the captive, restoration for the hopeless, and position for those who normally had no status. It just wasn't super appealing for some reason. The church should still be appealing to people in those positions those who are poor, those who are destitute, those who are in need of hope, and those who are in need of salvation. So what is your takeaway for this? Guys, if you don't know, without Christ, you are poor, desperate, in need of hope, in need of salvation. Every one of us, there is something within us that needs him. And he offers himself freely. And as we go forth as his church, we are called to serve him to pour out for those who need poured out into, just as he poured out into us, to forgive those who need forgiveness just as he forgave us, to love those who need love just as he loves us. We are called to serve just as he serves us. My final takeaway is this. Please note, you can be traditional in your views of men and women and still fully recognize this point. Christy and I, in the way that we actually function as husband and wife, we are functionally egalitarian and theologically complementarian, right? And that's largely because of how we see Jesus treating leadership. Jesus loved so much that he was willing to die for his people, and he loved his people so much that he was willing to get on his knees and serve them, to wash their feet, to debase himself before him, to do whatever is necessary to demonstrate his love and kindness, And I can serve a God who does that. I can follow a God who does that. That is the kind of relationship we are called to have with each other as husband and wife. I should love her to the point of death and love her to the point of pouring out myself moment by moment. And do I fail at that? Oh, yes, I'm not Jesus. (laughs) Oh, I fail at that. Way too often sometimes. But it's my ideal. It's what I'm shooting for. If I ever were to try and dominate her, first of all, that would be dumb because she's smarter than me. Uh, And oftentimes quite a bit more wise, right? But also she shouldn't take it. Domination is not the same thing as loving godly authority. We have a God who lovingly serves us in his leadership. And he doesn't domineer us.
Does that make sense? Final thing, and I just really quickly have to touch on this. If anyone in here is trapped in an abusive relationship in any way, shape, or form, yes, ma'am. Okay. Sorry. Oh, my goodness. Well, that could have been awkward. No. <laughs> if anyone in here is trapped in an abusive relationship and would like someone to talk to, please note that is not the type of relationship that God wants you to have. God doesn't want you to be in a relationship where you are constantly in fear or worried or broken, uh, where you are constantly hurt or in pain. That is not the kind of relationship God wants from you. Please, please come and speak to me, Jake, uh, Anna, one of the other leaders from the church, and we'll see what we can do to get you help. You don't have to be afraid. That's not what God wants for you. If you've been to a church that tells you that you just have to grin and bear it and take it, please note that church is wrong. Completely. And please get help. This is why we exist. To help those who need help. To proclaim the good news to those who need it. To proclaim Christ and his death and his resurrection wherever he goes. And to do so lovingly, kindly, in a holy manner. Amen.